If you've ever been to a concert at Britain Piers Arts, at Snape Maltings or at the Red House, there's a reasonable chance it featured vocal music. While there have, of course, also been countless orchestral or chamber concerts, song has a special significance for the whole organisation, which directly descends from its founding fathers, Benjamin Britten and Peter Piers. I'm Lucy Walker, and this is a podcast for Britain Piers Arts about song and why it continues to occupy such a central place across the organisation and for composers and performers. You just heard a clip from the song If It's Ever Spring Again by Robin Milford, performed by Lottie Betstein and James Girling. More of that later. The song Legacy Britain Left Behind manifests in a huge variety of forms. It's obviously in the actual body of work, Britain's own songs inspired by the voice of Peter Piers and others. It can also be found in the literary inspiration behind the songs, the poets Britain was drawn to, and how he came to find them. The legacy is powerfully felt in the nurturing of subsequent generations of performers and composers who have song at the centre of their worlds. And we'll hear from a composer and a singer who feels strongly that they are part of this lineage of songwriting and song performing. And finally, to the realisation of one of Britain's main musical philosophies, that music should not only be beautiful, but useful. Song, as we'll hear, is very good at being both. Hello, Chris. It's really good to see you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast about song. My, my pleasure. Um, I start by talking to Dr Chris Hilton, Head of Archive and Library at Britain Piers Arts. The archive at the Red House holds an extraordinary collection of materials in which you can trace Britain's creative processes. I asked Chris where, in amongst the books and the manuscripts, you might start if you wanted to find out about the importance to Britain of song. When people say composer's archive, obviously the, the first image that springs to mind is large amounts of manuscript music paper covered in pencil scribble. And of course, that is at the heart of our archive. The, the scores of Britain are the, the, the holy of holies, if you like. But I think what I'd like to do is take people mentally a little bit further back to the deeper recesses of our, our archive stacks, where we have the rarest of the books. There are certain really important texts that occupy two shelves within the, uh, the archive stacks, and they are the source materials for, for their works. So the poems that were set for song cycles, the, um, the, the um, narratives, usually novellas that were turned into operas and so forth. And I think they're extremely revealing uh, as to the importance of, of poetry and song to, uh, to Britain uh, throughout his career, really. The, the kickoff point, really, is um, it's a volume of George Crabbe's poems, um, which bizarrely Britain and Pierce find in Southern California in the 1940s, um, when they're kicking around in the US, aware that there's a war going on in England and feeling that, you know, really they should be back there. If once, once they can be allowed to cross the Atlantic, that's where they want to be. And feeling a bit rootless. There is a feeling of real homesickness, which that this book crystallises. Uh, George Crabbe was the rector of, uh, of Aldborough in the late 18th, early 19th century. And there's a long poem that he writes, The Borough really about what a dump the place is, about how it's uh, a tiny little decaying port full of people who with narrow minds who crush the life out of anybody with any individuality. Um, and from that, um, they extract the story of Peter Grimes. Britain doesn't write about his art very much, but 20 years later, giving a speech on um, receiving an award, he talks about that moment of finding that book and realising I'd become rootless and I needed to get back to where I belonged and I needed to turn this into, uh, into 
uh, an opera. So it's, it's that poetry really is the thing that kicks off Britain's entire career as a mature composer after spending his 20s in the Alden Circle and scratching about wondering what, what was the direction he was going to be in. In, in terms of the, the homesickness produced by George Crabbe and what that resulted in, it, it seems for Britain that part of his inspiration came from uh, belonging to a lineage, whether it be a geographical as well as a poetic one by George Crabbe or through other means. And we've got um, a poet that seems to uh, be time travelling through many generations of, of composers in terms of being an inspiration and a, and a, and a sort of uh, jumping off point. Uh, so perhaps you could say something about um, the importance of Thomas Hardy in the story. I, I would love to. It's one of my favourite items on that shelf of source material is a uh, a, a, a collected poems of Thomas Hardy, and it's a, it's a lovely example of the sort of genealogy of influence. In this case, the, the Thomas Hardy poems um, were presented to Britain in 1952 by Imogen Holst, um, his musical assistant. She is, of course, a composer in her own right, but also the daughter of Gustav Holst. Um, and the the book that she presents to him, which has written on the, the flyleaf to, to Ben with Love from Imo, uh, 1952, also had pasted within it uh, a couple of uh, letters with the, the letterhead, which was terribly familiar to me as an English graduate, Max Gates, Dorchester. They are actually letters from Thomas Hardy uh, to Gustav Holst. And Hardy is writing to Holst to thank him for setting uh, two or three of his poems. I think it's three from memory. Um, Hardy's basically saying to Holst, many thanks for setting these. They seem very nice insofar as I'm a judge. And he's being modest there because he was actually quite a decent violinist and came from a tradition of, of home music making. You know, I've, I've written some more poems recently. Here's, here's a volume uh, as a present, and maybe you'll find some lyrical ones in here that you want to set. So I think it's lovely that we've got there that, that trace of Holst setting Hardy's poems, and then his daughter presents them to Britain, who then in his turn... Uh, sets uh, other Hardy poems as winter words. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm professionally biased in this area. You know, I'm an archivist, and so I'm obsessed with this sort of thing. But I always think that these objects are the closest we're ever going to get to time travel. I'm never going to go back to 1909, but I can hold in my hand this little piece of paper on which it is forever 1909. And Thomas Hardy is talking to Gustav Holst. But at the same time, the book that it's located within is also from 1952. And here's Imogen Holst coming to Aldborough and handing over the book to Britain. And it's also later on in Britain's career when Britain comes back to that book, opens it up and starts setting winter words. Um, these objects are all rooted in so many layers of the past. And of course, you know, this, this is exactly what Britain talks about, about depending on rootedness and associations and the, the tradition from which he springs. Um, he knew what he was talking about, actually, didn't he? He, he, he ha had it absolutely on the nail where his, his inspiration came from. you just heard was from the 2023 Celebrations at Britain Peers Arts, an annual project giving school children across Suffolk the chance to perform on the stage at Snape Maltings. Some 1,400 young people took part over the course of the week. The song, called Me, is by composer Charlotte Harding, sung as a finale each day of the Celebrations Week. 
We're going to hear now from Caro Barnfield, who is the head of the music programme at Britain Peers Arts. She oversees all aspects of performance, of community engagement and residencies and artist development. I asked her to consider how important song is to the organisation now. And the answer is, briefly, very. Here's Caro now. Well, it plays a huge role in the organisation. Um, in many different departments, really across the organisation, I suppose now more so than maybe it ever has before. And it's evolved quite organically. I'll come back to that in a minute. So I suppose looking you know, from the outside, of course, singing is a really democratic form of music making. So it's a very easy access, as it were, to music making. Um, but of course, singing's always played a part in the organization. It, it couldn't possibly not have because Peter Pears was a singer. Britain's vocal output is central to his music. You know, it was a fundamental importance to both of them, to both men. So not only in a professional setting, but in a way in an amateur one too. I mean, I'm sure that you and Chris will have talked about Imogen Holst, for example, and what a key role she played in the organization and what an influential figure she, will have, she, she was in amateur music making. So that's you know, also at the heart of what we do and, and, and has been from the, from the early days. Um, I suppose we embrace singing absolutely from the start, as I said, as an easy access point to performing on the concert hall, but also crucially as part of the artist development programme. So we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Britain Peers Young Artist Programme last year. Um, and it's always been a place for people um, who've come through their formal setting, uh, through their formal training. They're embarking on a career as a, in this case, as a singer. Obviously, the Britain Peace and Artists Programme is for lots of different types of artists, but singing's always been absolutely at the core of it. And they need support to bridge that gap. It's a scary place to go to when you've always been in formal training and suddenly you're pushed out into the real world and, and have to make a living from your art, as it were. So it was a groundbreaking program at the time because Britain and Piers both recognised that actually there is a real need for the ex existing sort of pop artists to share their knowledge that they've accumulated over the, over the years. And you really feel that generosity of spirit in the Britain Piers Young Artists Programme that um, they shared their art with the next generation and really helped them along. And that's something that still exists. And, you know, as it's been, it was a groundbreaking program at the time. It's still a really influential and, and, and well-loved loved, um, artist development program known around the world. And so there are lots of other programs that have grown in the organisation and um, out of the early days, which now use singing in a, in a variety of ways and you know I'm, 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 I'm sure lots of people listening to this uh, they, they will have heard the expression of music being useful being a really you know our vision a really crucial part of how we think about our work so singing is such a good way to be really useful and so you know there are other areas in the organization that really have singing at its heart but maybe in a different way than through the Britain Peers Young Artists program so for example, with those, the Friday Afternoons project, which is um, a project that supports songwriting and singing in schools. It, we have the Big Sing, where a huge group of children come together um, in the concert hall to sing. There's Group A, for example, which is a community singing group in uh, or various community singing groups in underserved areas in Suffolk. And 
you know, there are there are lots of other places in which singing pops up and they're all sort of related. There are always, you know, it's really difficult to work out who's doing what, where exactly, because of course, all of it overlaps and you might have a Britain Pays Young Artist taking place in community workshop um, training in order to then deliver something Group A, which is just a wonderful way of using singing in the organisation. We'll hear a bit more from Caro later on. My next conversation is with a composer, Arthur Keegan, who's currently working on a recording of Thomas Hardy settings. This will include his own new work, plus a compendium of settings from other composers, both living and from the past. The clip you just heard was from Imogen Holst's setting called Weathers, sung by Lottie Betstein with James Gerling on the guitar. We'll hear from Lottie in a bit. Arthur starts off by talking about how the idea to set Hardy came about, something that was a direct consequence of a residency at Britain Peers Arts. So when we, when I came to the Red House first, um, as part of the residency, the Wildplum Arts um, made at the Red House residency, we were given a tour of the, the house, it was dead interesting, and they showed us in the library that volume of Hardy poetry with the inscription to Holst from Hardy. Now, I was meant to be working on an orchestral piece when I was at um, at the Red House, uh, but that wasn't going great. Um, and I was offered the chance one day to to work in um, Britain's library at his piano. Um, and I kind of just started to mess around with a poem that I'd been, been looking at and basically wrote the whole song pretty much that afternoon. Um, and then spoke to Lottie again about actually really developing this in, in, into a full cycle. Um, so that, I mean, that was five years ago, an event that we finally got to the point now where I'm, uh, as of this morning, trying to finish off this cycle, ready, ready, ready for the disc next year. But you know, just being in that library, looking through the Hardy poetry that he had there, you, it was such a strong connection to to that poetry uh, and to all of that rep that that, that Britain produced. Um, that it just, you know, it was a very inspiring kind of place to be and 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 thing to do. So this kind of lineage that Chris was talking about so from from Hulst well well per, a poetic musical lineage from Hardy to Hulst to Imogen Hulst to Britain to you um <laughs> is that <laughs> that's very generous is, well no not at all I mean that's this is, seems to be this seems to be how it's working and who knows what will who knows what will come next but the is that that seems to have been at the root of the the inspiration as well as presumably the actual text by Hardy himself the actual content of those poems definitely yeah I mean that whole history of hardy influence in the 20th century of English art song enormously more, more than any other poet and um, that was a huge part of of why we started this project at all Lottie loves Hardy's poetry she loves singing it she, the, the, there's something about the way that the words kind of actually feel when she sings them that, that, that I think she really likes um and so that that's why she suggested we we started on this this hardy path at all. I mean, when when I first started speaking to Lottie about this, I didn't especially like Hardy, or I, I, I didn't think I did. My experience of Hardy would, goes all the way back to school, and I wasn't the best student, uh, and reading Far From Madding Crowd was, at the time, the most boring thing that had ever happened to me. <laughs> and I kind of left it aside. <laughs> um, 
from then and just assumed I didn't really like Thomas Hardy then getting into these these poems and now it's been an obsession for the last five years uh, to kind of make that full circle but it but it is so much about continuing that tradition one of the things that's been that, that I've enjoyed about this project is commissioning Kerry Andrew to write a new song and kind of spreading the, the the hardy love forwards but also looking back through the canon we've arranged some songs by Brisson some songs by Finzi but also some more marginalized composers so Imogen Hulse we got a manuscript from the Red House archive of, of Weathers one of the poems that Hardy wrote in very late life and she sets only two years after it was published I think two or three um and that was the, it, it's a beautiful poem it's a beautiful setting um so there's that there's the Ivor Gurney setting that was never published um, a composer called Henry Handel Richardson, who's a woman in 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 um, Australia. She sets Hardy. She she was kind of English, but lived in Australia most of her life, I think. Um, and her 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 song was never published. And the same with Robin Milford. He he wrote a brilliant setting of um, oh, if it's ever spring again, um, and that was never published. So we're trying to both kind of add some more things into the canon from the last hundred years and also just extend the tradition in hopefully in a way that Britain um you know would be would be pleased to see Hardy's influence stretching forwards. Funnily enough you're consciously or not mirroring some things that Britain said which is having partly having something to to work with that material but also mm. it was be, it was participating in this tradition as well for him was really really important the tradition of particularly English lyric poetry and obviously he set other languages as well but I think that he felt he was joining in something yep and it was a form of communication that he felt completely comfortable in in taking part in as well so it does sound sounds quite well, definitely I mean that part of we've done quite an unusual thing in this in this project by arranging the piano songs for guitar um there's both practical and creative reasons but behind that one of the things i really like about that is it links into the connection with renaissance string accompanied song you know we go all the way back to purcell and and, and that and that period of, of of english song um and you know dowland obviously um and then that comes right through and you know the 20th century specifically english art song is such a rich tradition but when you can make these leaps kind of back in history and then hopefully you know, foot forward as well. It it, it feels like a, a just a really rich wellspring um, for a, a whole medium, and that, and that is lovely. You know, you kind of position yourself. Um, you know, I I, I want to write string quartets because Shostakovich wrote fifteen brilliant string quartets. I want to write, you know, the, the form that goes back through musical history. It really appeals to me. I, I like building on that. I'm not a kind of year zero style composer. Um, and what better tradition to tap into than, 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 than song? was an extract of Voices from the cycle Elegies for Emma by Arthur Keegan. And finally, we hear from the singer, mezzo-soprano Lottie Betstein, a performer who has taken part in the Young Artist Programme at Britain Peers Arts, and who always relishes the chance to put together imaginative and wide-ranging song programmes. 
She's worked closely with Arthur on this song project, and I started by asking her what she thought of Hardy as a writer, having got to know his works over the last few years. I'd like to say, you know, oh, I read Tess when I was a teenager or something. I, I didn't, I'm afraid. I didn't really, I knew of him. I hadn't read his novels. Um, but the, the settings by composers like Finzi, Britton, um, and so many others, as it turns out, as we've discovered, um, I was really drawn to his language and um, imagery and uh, sort of innate positivity. I think people tend to misunderstand Hardy as, you know, it's all very gloomy and dark, but I don't think that is the case necessarily. I think there's a lightness and a, a sense of humour in there as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a really a wonderful celebration of, of, of English music in general, uh, as well as this this fantastic writer. I'm struck by something you said actually off air before we started recording about song recitals being able to blend the old and the new so brilliantly together. And that's something that you clearly do a lot in your work. Is there something you're working on now that sort of leans in particularly to that to that blending of old and new? Well, actually, yeah, there is one that I would like to mention, which is a, a, a relatively new project that I've got going with a fantastic accordionist, Ryan Corbett. Um, he's a BBC New Generation artist. And it's a it's a very broad reaching program that not only covers old and new, you know, you've got um, as we, we go as far back as Josquin uh, in that program in Monteverdi, but then, you know, we've got 20th century art song in there as well. Um, but then we're also beyond that, we're also looking outside of classical. So, you know, we've got Schubert, followed by Björk, followed by, you know, Kurt Weill, followed by Radiohead, um, followed by Monteverdi. So it's it's really extremely broad reaching stylistically, as well as, you know, in terms of eras and languages as well. So um, that's one of the most bonkers <laughs> ones I've done recently, but it's so much fun. And I think it also just, you know, it just shows a good song is a good song is a good song. And it doesn't matter when, where, in what language, what style, classical, non-classical, it's just, it's all fitting. And I think the accordion in this situation is a really excellent instrument for that, as the guitar is too, actually, because these are instruments that already sort of cross the boundaries of, of genre, as it were. Um, and they've, you know, they're both those instruments are, and in some way also piano, but I think especially instruments like um, guitar and accordion, they're, they're folk instruments really predominantly, and they came from other earlier versions of those instruments. So this in some way or another, like the guitar has always been around in most of the world. <laughs> so um, yeah, I'm, I'm drawn to, especially drawn to instruments like guitar and accordion because um, it, it offers this sort of flexibility. I know you recently took part in the um the Young Artist Development Programme at Britain Peers Arts. Uh, and is this, is this curation of, of really interesting song programmes, is that, is that part of the work that you you did there? T tell, me, tell me a bit about that programme. The, the cohort that I was part of, um, it was quite a, quite a special group. And I think we were quite lucky because I feel like it was a bit of a one-off for Britain Peers and how, how the Young Artist Programme was run for that year was quite unique. Um, and uh, I think, yeah, we we really um, 
benefited so much and I'm very very grateful for that for that time not just because of you know meeting these wonderful fellow uh, artists and a lot of connections that came about after that um, but uh, the freedom that we were that we were given to develop in whatever way that we wanted and um, and then we were all given a platform in the in the festival at the end of the year so this was last June um, and that was uh, that 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 was an incredible opportunity and, and gift, really. Um, so yeah, I used personally, I used the opportunity uh, to develop this uh, electronics and voice program, or solo voice and fixed media, really. Which then later, through the Festival of New, I took one step further um, at Britain Piers and involved a, a video artist as well. Uh, so that was a that was a project that has become very important to me now but was born at Snape and uh yeah I am very very grateful for that um and then the other other performances that I was involved in at the festival with other young artists in their concerts were also so rewarding and wonderful singing um the Abraham and Isaac canticle with James Way who is an amazing singer and that was a very very memorable uh concert for me um and yeah, something completely different from my electronics and voice program that I did the following night, but it was just a mad week and really, um, yeah, just really made me very happy because it, it covered a, such a range of repertoire um, and, and areas of music that I really love. Uh, and I just felt so supported to, to do all of it. In, in a way, that's, of course, the spirit of the programme, that you, that you hope that people realise that they have their voice. And I mean that sort of in a, in a metaphorical sense rather than, than <laughs> one does hope they have their real voice. But um, there is something about developing your own voice and your own curatorial voice, of course, that you can only really start once you've, you know, taken the leap into the real world of um, of the music industry, of the classical music world, or much broader, of course, it doesn't only have to be the classical music world. Um, and that's really interesting when it comes back to us as well, of course, because it's, it's lovely to program it if we can, and to listen to those voices that might come back with exceptionally interesting programming ideas that all originate in song. It's, yeah, it's fascinating, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's just such a, it's just fun. <laughs> it's just fun to just do lots of things and lots of different styles. And that's all, that's all there is to it, really. I don't want to, um, I wouldn't want to limit it in any way. There's so much wonderful music to enjoy and different ways to sing. Why not do it all? The last words there from Caro and Lottie. The music you just heard was, first of all, Arthur's String Quartet No. 1, afterwards, Elegy for Tom, and finally, If It's Ever Spring Again, by Robin Milford, both from the Wessex Songs Project. The performers were Lottie Betstein, James Gerling, and the Ligeti Quartet. I'm very grateful to Arthur for generously providing these tracks and giving permission to use them in this podcast. 
Finally, thanks to all my guests for their insights and humour about the endlessly fascinating subject of song.